Welcome to the Inclusive Research with Pearl podcast. I am Mary Daka and I will be your host for this episode. Joining us today are two guests, Veronica Ngum and Jeffrey Andrian. The topic of discussion is disability language. We're trying to find out the right language to use and the implications language has on persons living with disabilities. As we get started, just a reminder that the full transcript is available in the show notes link below. Thank you. Hello, Veronica and Jeffrey. We are delighted to have you both join us today for this discussion. Before we get into it, I would like to give you both a chance to introduce yourselves. Okay. My name is Veronica Ngum. I'm a woman with disability, president for the Northwest Association of for Women with Disability in the Northwest region, Cameroon. I am a disability and inclusive development advocate. Thank you. Thanks, Veronica. So my name is Jeffrey Andrian. I am of Filipino background and I, I live in Toronto uh, with my family and I do not have a disability. And really my orientation to disability is shaped mostly by my training, first as a physiotherapist. And also when I completed my master's degree in critical disability studies, it gave me a deeper understanding of what disability is and truly understanding the impact instance of the use of language and how it relates to disability. And so I would like to reiterate uh, that I do not have the lived experience of disability and my understanding of disability is truly shaped by, um, by different theories and academic training. Thank you so much, Veronica and Jeffrey for those introductions. It's a pleasure having you both on our podcast today, and I'm sure we'll get to learn more about your amazing work as the discussion progresses. Today's topic is disability language. Years of experience and activism have pushed for the use of proper terminology when talking about disability. What does the literature say about the right ways to talk about disability? And in your opinion, is that a right way to talk about disability? If so, what does that look like to you? Okay. I have read an article recently from the National Youth Leadership Network of Portland State University, which says that there are different terms that we should not use when addressing persons with disability or when speaking about disabilities. The terms we do not want people to use taught us as persons with disabilities are handicapped, differently able, crippled or crippled, victim, retarded, stricken, poor, unfortunate or special needs. That is the brief thing I've seen in literature about the language and terms that we should not use for persons with disabilities. We have different disability types and they vary with degree. Based on these disability types, there are terms that refers to specific types of disabilities. Someone having a, a visual impairment can be called a blind, but you should not call him a dumb or invalid because before a lot of uh, progress and study on disability, those were the terms that were used. But the respectful way to call somebody who is visually impaired is either the person is a blind or the person is visually impaired. It depends on the degree, the degree of a visual impairment. And those who are deaf or hard of hearing, we should not also use deaf and dumb 
or mute, but we should just say a deaf or a person with hard of hearing. We all know that the word dumb means somebody who is stupid. So if you're using dumb, it means you are stigmatizing that person. And for those who are having mobility uh, impairment or physical disability, we are not supposed to call them handicapped, physically challenged, special needs or deformed, crippled, spastic, wheelchair-bound, lame. Those are not proper terms to address us with physical impairment, but the right term to use is a wheelchair user, person with a mobility or physical disability. We continue to explore the literature. There are so many terms that are applicable to different types or degrees of disability that we should be very careful because in our context, so many people use the wrong appellations and terms very often. Thank you. Thanks for that, Veronica. And I totally agree with all the points that you have raised. And really, I think, you know, if, if there's one good thing about what's happening in terms of the relationship between disability and language is that the world has evolved to really further understand that persons with disabilities really at the end of the day have the same human rights as, as people who do not have disabilities. You know, in the literature, there are really two schools of thought. On one side, there are those who say that we should use a person-first language, meaning to say, persons with disabilities or person with visual impairment or person with hearing deficits or impairment. On the other side, there's also what we call identity first. And what we mean by this is that we should be identifying persons with disabilities based on, on their impairments, let's say deaf or even blind. And, you know, and I think it's also important for me to emphasize that these words, for instance, should be capitalized, meaning to say that it is an identity and a culture. Um, and as mentioned a while ago, these schools of thought have evolved through the years, and really it, it reflects how the world has been uh, much more aware in terms of the rights of persons with disabilities. And at the same time, really, we're trying to it sends the strong message that at the end of the day, it is all about having all people enjoying the equal rights, whether a person has a disability or not. To your question about what would be the right way for people to talk, quote unquote, about disability, really, at the end of the day, you know, there's the saying, nothing about us without us. And I think it's really critical for persons without disabilities, such as myself, to really ask the person whom I'm talking to who happens to have a disability to say, how would you like me to call you or to refer to you? Because at the end of the day, it's a huge sign of respect that we acknowledge the disability, but at the same time, we acknowledge the person who has the disability. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for that wonderful perspective. It's about all people enjoying equal rights, and therefore everyone has a role to play to make sure that the language that is being used is not violating the rights of persons living with disabilities. And thank you, Veronica, for that detailed list of what to and what not to use when it comes to terms when referring to persons living with disabilities. Thank you. I think that was a very powerful point you made. Moving on, and I know we touched on this a bit, but I would like us to visit it again. How does language shape the experience and meaning of disability? What has been your experience on this one? So I can probably comment first. So the question is, how does language shape the experience and meaning of disability? And probably I can comment on this, um, again, as a person without a disability. And I can comment on this based on the context of my work. So first and foremost, I am a physiotherapist. And so... 
as a clinician, it almost feels like sometimes the person with a disability is diminished into a diagnosis, right? Meaning to say a stroke patient or um, a deaf child. And so diminishing the person into a diagnosis goes back very sadly into the medical model of disability. At the same time, I always felt that disability as a culture is yet to be embraced in the South. I've always felt that disability culture, the words disability culture is, you know, primarily formulated in the North and is slowly going down into the, um, in the Southern uh, countries. And I can say this probably because as someone who was born and raised in the Philippines, there was, there's always the taboo in our culture that, you know, when, when, when somebody is disabled, it becomes just almost disrespectful to say, that he is a disabled person per se, but rather we would refer to that person using the, the, the person first language. And the third point I wanna make is that as a humanitarian worker, I think language shapes disability because having traveled both in Asia and Africa, you know, at the end of the day, we, are, we always have to look at the local context and how people and various communities refer to persons with disabilities. But we also have to recognize and acknowledge the fact that really in, in some jurisdictions and in some countries, those terminologies can be really degrading, right? And so how do we influence other countries and other territories in terms of saying the, the dialect that you are using to refer to persons with disabilities is degrading and humiliating, uh, but at the same time, recognizing that there's already an empower balance for someone who is an outsider telling the people in the local communities, communities to, to change how they refer to persons with disabilities. And so again, going back to my, to my point a while ago, at the end of the day, it's really critical and important that persons with disabilities uh, or rather persons without disabilities should ask persons with, dis with disabilities on how to best um, you know, refer to them. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey, for shedding light on how it boils down to asking. People might have varying preferences. What about you, Veronica? Okay, uh, thank you, Jeffrey, for those good points. Um, I have come to realize that language has a lot of play of word, a lot of synonyms, and sometimes it is in context based on culture, identity, and the professional background. So the way someone who has a professional background with, of project management speaks English grammar is not the same way like a teacher. What I mean is, from my experience in our community, we know as disability advocates that when you want to refer to a person with disability, it is the person first language. You use the, you refer to the person first before the disability comes. And we know very well that the right terminology to use is a person with a disability. But now in my context here, when I introduce myself and say, I am a woman with a disability, somebody will walk up to me and tell me that, no, you are not a woman with disability, but you are a woman with special abilities. Others will say you are a woman with special needs because you have a lot of potentials. You are a differently abled woman. But those are the terminologies that we have denying and we are not promoting in our context as persons in our community as persons with disabilities because we see that like stigmatizing. If I say I'm a woman with disability, it's a true identity of me that I'm presenting. Don't try to please me by telling me that 
I am a differently able somebody. How am I differently able? I'm a human just like you. So we try to advocate and educate people about disability language and the right terms to use, but it's a bit complicated. So we have different ways that language has played around with us so much so that we don't even know how to situate ourselves based on the fact that in the disability uh, community, in as a disability professional, I practically learn the right things on daily basis and evolve as time goes on, but getting to change the perception of the communities is complicated. So language has a long way to go for us to really agree on the right ways to function in the community for persons with disabilities. That is very interesting. I never looked at it like that. It is indeed a learning moment on why we should avoid using decorated words that might sound harmless, but are very stigmatizing to persons living with disabilities. Talking about experience, when we're talking about people living with disabilities, it is often said that language creates both hypervisibility and invisibility. First of all, what do these two words mean in this context? And have you seen that reflected in your personal and professional life? We'll start with you, Jeffrey. Thank you for that. So when I think about the questions, you know, what's the difference between between being hypervisible and invisible. To me, what this means is that when we talk about hypervisibility, these are for people who are not disabled. So meaning to say for persons without disabilities, when we see somebody with a disability, we start to identify right, right away the things that they're, they're able to do in another way, right? To, to, to Veronica's point a while ago. And so the question becomes, you know, what is normal and what is not normal, right? Because that has always been the debate around, you know, what is the correct way to, to talk about disability? And, and really, you know, it boils down to the question, especially from the medical profession of what is this patient's diagnosis, right? On the other hand, for persons with disabilities, their disability really is invisible because it is who they are as individuals and it is, their, it is who they are, it is their identity and it defines their personalities, defines who they are as human beings. And so I think those are the two main differences. If, if I start thinking about, you know, um, the, when we, we talk about this language, creating both hypervisibility and invisibility. Um, in, in, my, in, my prof, in my personal life, from a clinical standpoint, when we start seeing clients, for instance, and they have some forms of impairment, we right away boil down to what is their diagnosis. And so the disability becomes the hyper-visible um, feature of that individual. Um, on the other hand, because I am a person without a disability, I could only imagine that you know, for, for persons with disability, it really their disability is invisible, but rather you know, what really is important for them are their abilities and the things that they can really do. Uh, to contribute to social and even personal development? Um, in the context of disability, being invisible, it is when individuals or families look at persons with disability based on their inabilities and failures to do things. That is, they are too focused on their weaknesses or their flaws. They make persons with disability feel like their abilities are not useful enough. That is, they are, they, they are not worthy to participate in things. As a child with disability, you are in a family. They think for you, they decide for you. You are not involved in decision-making. You, you don't participate in daily life. And 
for example, as a child born in a family with a disability, they had to decide for me which kind of shoes I have to wear. They don't seek my opinion to know if because of the deformity I have on my leg, which shoes do I feel more comfortable with? But by their assumption, they think for me what kind of shoes they think is comfortable. Most of the time, they don't give value to your opinions. They don't give value to your character. They don't give value to you in any way. They feel like you are always wrong. You need to work extra hard in such a family in order to find your way through, to, to make your voice to be heard. So that those are things related to invisibility that has generated from the hyper uh, visibility of uh, for persons with disability based in their communities. Thank you, Veronica, for sharing your lived experience, showing us how important it is that people living with disabilities are consulted before any decision for them is made to avoid making them invisible. And we see how dangerous assumptions can be because that can cause both invisibility and hypervisibility for people living with disabilities. Moving on, I would like us to talk about working in teams. When working in teams, especially one made up of people with and without disabilities, how do we strike a balance between moving away from the stigma and bias that people with disabilities cannot live a normal and productive life, while also acknowledging the fact that the environment in which we live in often puts limitations on their abilities to equally participate or have equal access? And I know, Veronica, you touched on this point. Maybe we could start with you. Okay, in relation to working in teams and getting persons with disability to be actively involved, I have understood and I have I have experienced that when initiatives are about to take place, they assume everything for persons with disabilities. In our community, we always advocate for access, especially infrastructural access. We, we advocate and we give points on how they can make structures in public and private places to be accessible for persons with disabilities. What our leaders and officials assume is that access is just a ramp. When you tell them your office is not accessible, they say, no, but we have a ramp. This is a ramp here. They don't take into consideration the dimension. And only a person with disability can give a right dimension or as somebody who is an expert in inclusive architecture can give the right dimension. But they just assume that because you have constructed something straight without the steps into a building, it's a ram and it's the right thing. Normally, before you do that, you needed to seek the opinions and contributions of disability advocate, let them do an accessibility audit that will help you understand better on how to do that ramp. And now, because disability varies with degrees and types, people need to also understand that disability needs are somehow specific to their type and degree. I have a disability, but a physical uh, or a mobility impairment, but it is quite mild. It's not very severe like other colleagues with uh, physical impairment. Now their disability, their accessibility need is different from mine. I always make people to understand that I don't need a RAM because my deformity on my leg does not function well with a RAM. I need steps. I function better with steps while others will function better with a RAM. That's the di diversity in disability that People need to consult persons with disability, bring them in discussions and decision-making all the time. 
So, but gradually, as we continue to advocate, there is a change, there's an improvement because as a woman with disability, women leader in the Northwest, I have been participating in so many consultative meetings that we share ideas on the needs of persons with disabilities and how to meet them. Thank you and over to you. Thank you, Veronica. Again, we see the need for involving people living with disabilities in each step of the way. A lot of biases that exist about people living with disabilities can be broken by avoiding assumptions and just asking and sharing ideas. Um, Jeffrey, would you like to share your thoughts on working in teams, especially one made up of people with and without disabilities? Yes, thank you for, for, for that one. And really the question is, you know, what steps can be taken to ensure that the way we talk, we talk to or talk about team members with disabilities is really respectful. So I think first and foremost, we have to create an environment of inclusion that having this inclusive environment is an expectation and a commitment from everyone working on the same team, whether that person has a disability or not. By doing so, you know, and I think in through the spirit of inclusion by in itself, it's already language in action. Meaning to say, if everyone in the team is really committed to creating an inclusive environment, then I think we have already torn down the very, the, the, one of the biggest barriers uh, between persons with disabilities and persons without disabilities. Second, you know, as mentioned by Veronica, society almost always is the one creating the disability. And in this case, we have to remove those barriers that society has created in the first place. And this may include uh, incorporating and consulting with uh, persons with disabilities on how to create accessible environments um, like stairs and ramps and whatnot. But beyond that, I think, you know, at the end of the day that sometimes people forget that everyone has names, right? And so in, in, the, in the simplest form of respect, I think it's important for us to really call each other by our names. Thank you. Indeed, Jeffrey, everyone has a name and that just calls us a reminder that everyone is human and having a disability is just one part of who they are and not their entire definition. Thank you so much, Jeffrey and Veronica. This has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you very much, Mary and Veronica. It's my pleasure to meet you. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's my pleasure. Too. Disability language. What is the right way to talk about disability? How do we avoid creating hypervisibility and invisibility for people living with disabilities? How can people with and without disabilities work well in teams? These and among others have been some of the questions that have been answered in this podcast discussion today. We see how vital it is that we avoid decorated terms such as person with special needs because such terms that might seem uplifting are stigmatizing people living with disabilities. We see the importance of avoiding assumptions and actually involving people living with disabilities in each decision-making process. Hope you found this informative and I hope you have learned something new. Be sure to check out our show notes for transcripts and resources and remember to follow our podcast on every podcast listening platform where you will find past episodes and have the chance to listen to upcoming podcast episodes. You can also reach out to us if you have any questions or you want to become part of the Pearl Network through our email 
pearl p-i-r-l at uTorono.ca. Thank you for listening. Bye.